Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode five in the book of John titled, You Must Be Born Again, where we discuss John chapter three, verses one through 16. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are entering one of the more famous sections of scripture, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, which is very well known because of John 3.16, the famous verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But this is part of a big conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Can you give us a little overview of what we're going to see here? Certainly. The, the Gospel of John was written to bring readers to a saving faith in Christ, and this chapter fits right into that. And one of the things that uh, we need to know is how imperative, it is essential that we be born again. We cannot go to heaven unless we're born again. And, and being born again, we learn from this passage, is a working of the sovereign spirit of God on us. And we learn from the overall message of the Gospel of John, focused on faith in Jesus Christ. That as we look to Christ, the one who was lifted up uh, from the ground, uh, crucified like the bronze serpent, we'll find out today as we as we look to him, the look of faith, we have eternal life. But that look will never happen unless we are first transformed by the Spirit. And that transformation, that other scriptures call it regeneration, uh, the analogy Jesus gives us here is being born again. And so we're going to find out today how essential that is, what it entails, and this text is ideal for bringing us there. Amen. Well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, There's a lot of rich spiritual content in these verses, but I want to start with this man, Nicodemus. We're introduced to him in verse 1. What does the text tell us about Nicodemus, and why did he come to Jesus at night? Well, the text tells us that he's a Jewish leader. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, so the Sanhedrin. Um, He was, uh, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he was 
the preeminent, maybe one of the preeminent Bible teachers among the Jews. And so he's a very significant figure uh, to come to Jesus. Why do you think he came to Jesus at night? Well, I think it becomes clear as the Gospel of John unfolds. There's a kind of a character development with Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. We don't get a lot of information, but we see him moving from point to point to point. And I think uh, he has sympathies toward Jesus. He has respect for Jesus. He is ready to believe in Jesus, I think. Uh, But it's somewhat like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Everything's in place, but the fire has to fall from heaven, and he has to be born again. Something has to happen to him. And so he's seen the miracles, he's heard the teachings, he's respectful of Jesus, but he's not born again yet, he's not transformed. And so later then we're going to see him speaking up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin, risking some ridicule, but he's not ready to fly his flag yet, if indeed he's been converted. But then at the end of Jesus' life, he's there along with Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus, and that took a great deal of courage. And so I think by then he has become a genuine, uh, courageous, open follower of Jesus. So that's what's going on with Nicodemus. So he comes at night because he's not ready to fly his flag. He wants more information. So he's he's hedging his bets. He's guarding himself. Right. Now he says in verse 2 that they know that Jesus has come from God, but he calls him a teacher. He just says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. But this type of confession and profession falls short of the confession that Jesus is Lord. So what can we say about this type of maybe minor confession? Well, I think people are frequently ready, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity, ready to, to patronize Jesus and speak well of him, um, saying he is a prophet, a wise man, a wise teacher, a religious leader, a moral example. But you have to come to the place where you see in Jesus the actual Son of the living God. You see the incarnate Son of God. And Nicodemus certainly wasn't there yet. So he is calling him a teacher from God. Now, by the time we make it to John 9, I think, to say anything positive about Jesus could result in you being put out of the synagogue. The Jewish leaders had already concluded that Jesus was poison. He was a false teacher. So for Nicodemus to say anything positive at this point took a certain measure of courage. But as you said, it's still short of being born again. It's still short of actually recognizing who Jesus was. So he's ready to patronize him. He's ready to speak positively about him, but he's still investigating. He's not ready to confess him. Now Jesus gives a surprising answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? And why is it that unless you're born again, you cannot see it? Yeah, it's a very important question, and I think it's the organizing theme of another gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is presented there with his genealogy and with various evidences and his statements as the king of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Matthew uses the term heaven. Luke uses the term God, kingdom of God, same thing. Um, But the kingdom of heaven is the place where God rules, a spiritual place where God rules over people who are delighted in and trust in that rule. So transformed people, Christian people, people who have been born again. And so ultimately then the kingdom of heaven will be the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. It's an actual realm, a city and a country that God is preparing, a place where he prepares for them. That's where we're heading. But in the meantime, the kingdom of heaven is advancing. And it's a spiritual realm where people have crossed over from a satanic kingdom, a satanic dark realm, uh, a dominion, over into Christ's uh, kingdom where he rules over them. And people want him 
to rule over them. So that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. So it's it's an it's a both and, not either or. It's it's both here and ultimately eternal. Um, so it's a a place. So you could speak of it just simply as heaven. Jesus could simply be saying, you can't go to heaven when you die unless you're born again. But it's probably more than that. It's also you can't walk in relationship with God now as a member of the kingdom of heaven now unless you're born again. So why can't an unbeliever even see this? Yeah, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And so I think the idea there is you you could argue the word see either means to see it now by faith, where faith is the eyesight of the soul by which you see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. So the idea then is to see an invisible realm, to see Christ. Like the book of Hebrews said, we see him at the right hand of God, that kind of thing, a seeing by faith. But it could mean, you know, like in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It means be there in heaven to see him with your own eyes. So you will not see with your own eyes the eternal, beautiful kingdom of light unless you're born again. I think they're both true. You're going to see it now by faith. You're going to see it then with your eyes. And you won't see it. In either case, you will not see it unless you're born again. So what does it mean then to be born again? Well, that's the question here. Nicodemus doesn't understand, and it's going to be what we're, we're going to talk about over the next couple of minutes. But put it simply, it means to be transformed, to be made new by the Holy Spirit, to, to have the heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh put in, to be made into a new person. Uh, it's an entire new beginning spiritually to your life. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in transgressions and sins, but God made us alive. So it means to be made alive. Or in First uh, or in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, where it says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the idea there is to have God speak light into your hearts and to have you be able to see it by faith. You're made a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, everything has been made new. So all of that's just different language for regeneration or, or what the text uses here, being born again. But Nicodemus doesn't understand. In verse 4 he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's thinking physical birth. Jesus is talking spiritual birth. Yeah, it's going to happen again and again. It's already happened in John chapter 2 where Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He's speaking of his own resurrection, not the physical temple. Um, I think the Samaritan woman's going to do the same thing with the living water. She's going to think he's talking about physical water. Um, it just happens again and again uh, in John 6 with Jesus uh, giving his flesh for the life of the world. And so that is physical that he's dying on the cross, but there's a spiritual reality to what he's saying. So he speaks in, in analogies here. He speaks, and he's going to say this, in earthly terms, with earthly language. The change that needs to happen to you, Nicodemus, is so transformative. It is so pervasive. It's like an entire new life, like you're born again like you were the first time. But Nicodemus is taking a physical and thinks it's preposterous. How can a man crawl up inside his mother's womb one more time and be born? It's not possible. What do you make of Jesus' response to him in verse 5, where he says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think the confusing part is water and Spirit. Yeah, so he's, he's doubling down. Jesus repeats it, effectively saying the same thing again, but in slightly different words this time. And so you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born uh, of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now we get a different verb. First time it was see, then it was enter. And so the idea of enter is so important. We are all born 
outside the kingdom of God. We have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So there's that entering. You're on the outside, Nicodemus. You're on the outside. You need to, you need to be born again uh, in order to enter. But here he changes the terminology slightly, and he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on what this means, water and the Spirit. 1 John 5 speaks uh, somewhat uh, similarly to this. Um, Titus speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's a washing image there. Um, it could be that we're just talking about being born the first time and being born the second time. That seems to be a bit of a non-statement. Like unless you're human, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So you have to be born the first time. So that would be born of water. Uh, I, even as a Baptist, I would lo be loath to link it to water baptism. Uh, because that would imply uh, baptismal regeneration. You have to be water baptized in order to be saved. I wouldn't say that. So for me, I might tend toward a washing with spiritual water by the Holy Spirit that cleanses you. Um, I might go in that direction, and then the transforming power of the Spirit. Uh, you've got to be born by the Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is, is often uh, depicted as both water and Wind, wind, you know, for the, the pneumatos. The, fire right, too. The, um, fire, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm thinking of uh, both John 4 and John 7. Okay. John 4, where Jesus tells the Samaritan yeah. woman that he can give her living water. And then in John 7, he says, if anyone uh, comes to me to drink, um, you know, basically I'll put rivers of living water in him. Sure. And then John said he spoke of the Spirit. Yeah, I, I think in, in those images, I, absolutely, we see the link between water and the Spirit. And you get the same thing in Isaiah frequently, that, that water in the desert image is the Spirit. Here I would lean toward the Titus image of washing, that, that if you're not cleansed by the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And the Spirit does a cleansing work. We are washed by faith. We're washed by the Spirit. And if you're not washed, Jesus will say with the foot washing in John 13, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, he washes us by the Spirit. So I would lean toward a washing with the water of the Spirit and a transforming of your very nature. You're changed. So your past sins are all washed away through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And then your nature is changed. You're made into a new person. Now, Jesus gives an explanation in verse 6. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And he says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what do you make out of his statement in verses 6 and 7? Okay, so he's speaking in earthly language. He's speaking in, in common language. So by then, uh, Nicodemus would have seen many babies born. Uh, you know, they didn't have hospitals back then. They had midwives that came in. And, you know, I'm sure he had his own children to watch them be born. And he said, look, that whole process that you've seen many times, that is for physical birth. I am using an analogy it's like that, only it's spiritual, and it's something the Spirit does. So the normal processes of married love, and then pregnancy, and then birth, is what's in your mind now, and I'm using that as an analogy to say, in the same way the Spirit then moves, but He gives birth to a spiritual entity, a spiritual reality. You have been born again by the Spirit, and you now in the Spirit are alive, and you will live forever. Even though your body dies and goes to corruption, your spirit will live forever and ever. Your, your inner nature, your inner man, will be transformed and made into something new that will last for all eternity, even though your body will go to corruption. What do you make out of Jesus personalizing his statements. At first he said one must be born again and one must be born of water and spirit. Now 
he says, unless you are born again, or, or you must be born again yeah. in verse 7. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's just look at the intensive, um, imperative tone here. You must be born again. Uh, it's required. You cannot go to heaven if this doesn't happen to you. So people talk about born-again Christians. That's redundant. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. If you've not yet been born again, you're not a Christian. It's not like something Billy Graham or some evangelists or some evangelicals made up. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. You must be regenerate by the Spirit. You must be transformed. If that's not happened to you, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And be wise for you to learn what are the marks of being born again. How can we tell if I've been born again? This is very, very important. This is not what the British uh, unbelievers would call the church people in the Anglican church enthusiasm, where it's a special form, exuberant form of Christianity. No, this is required. You must be born again. Now let's also look at the grammar. It's odd. We're talking about a passive imperative. So by that I mean uh, passive is the action happens to you. Like the old saying, a soldier would say, that battle was fierce, it was kill or be killed. Well, there's a world of difference between killing and being killed, if you're a soldier. Being killed means the action is done to you. All right, but there's also something called an imperative. Imperative is you must do something, you're commanded to do something. So if you put that together, it's a very odd thing. A passive imperative is you must have something done to you. And that's true. It's also, we get the same teaching in Ephesians where it says, you must be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's the Christian life after that. Same thing in it's Romans 12. You must imperative. be transformed. Be being transformed. That's right. So here's the thing. We are told, absolutely, if we want to go to heaven, something must happen to us. And what's interesting, it's not happened yet to Nicodemus. So it's, it's instrumental to know that this thing has to happen. Even in our unregenerate state, there are things we must learn and know before we are converted. So that shows the pro process of drawing that happens. It's a whole lifetime process. So little by little, some things get put into place. But still, like I said, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the wood and, and the altar and, and the water and the sacrifice are all there. But the fire has to fall from heaven. So information gets put in Nicodemus. Nicodemus, it's not okay how you are. This is not fine. If this keeps going on just like this, you're going to go to hell. Something has to happen to you, Nicodemus. I'm telling you, you must be born again. It's imperative. And so, yeah, he personalizes it, saying, Nicodemus, I care about you. You're coming to me here at night, and you're telling me I'm a great teacher, and no one could do these miracles if God were not with it. Let's cut, all, cut through all that. Let's just get to the point. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Jesus uses the wind as an analogy for the Spirit, specifically in the Spirit's activity in, in making people be born again. So he says, the wind blows our wishes. You hear the sound. You do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So how does this help us understand how the Spirit quickens faith and regeneration in a person? Well, I think it's a beautiful analogy. It's powerful. And Jesus is just such a masterful teacher. He uses two things here in this passage um, that we're, we should be commonly experiencing. We know about, namely physical birth and the process of, of giving birth to a baby and then uh, the experience of wind that we've all had. And the fundamental idea here is no one has ever seen the wind, and no one can understand the movements of the wind. What we see is what the wind does, the effect of the wind. We could be inside a building and look through uh, a window, and we can see the effect of the wind and say, wow, it's really windy out, even if we hear nothing. 
because the trees are bending. They're bending way over. You can see the leaves, the way that they're moving, the way the branches are moving. And so it is with, the, with everyone born of the Spirit. You can see, you can't see the Spirit coming, but you can see what the Spirit has done to the person. They're different now. They talk differently. They live differently. They've become a new man, a new woman, a new boy or girl. It's an amazing change that the Spirit works. So the wind blows, and I love what it says, wherever it wishes. The wind, you can't stop the wind. No one can restrain the wind. The wind's going to do what the wind's going to do. The wind is God. The wind is, is the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit moves where he chooses to move. Now, he moves in concert with the will of the Father and of the Son. So the Trinity work together. But the, the Holy Spirit goes after the unconverted elect and brings them to faith in Christ, and nothing can stop it. Mm. But Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He says, how can these things be? Why do you think, though he was so educated in the Old Testament, though he had spent years studying the law, why do you think he couldn't understand what Jesus was saying? He's just blind to it. I mean, there's so many evidences of this. You look at the, the Valley of the Dry Bones and how, uh, how Ezekiel was commanded to prophesy to the wind. The Hebrew is ruach, and it's the same word for spirit. And the spirit comes, and they come alive. And so there's, there's certainly images of this. Uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the spirit through the, the prophets uh, gave lots of indications of the kinds of things that would happen here. But Nicodemus is lost. He's clueless here. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's just proof that Jesus is right in his diagnosis. You're not there yet. And so you've got all this learning. Everything's in place. You have this information. Nicodemus, haven't you heard of the Valley of the Dry Bones and how the, the, the spirit, the wind came and life came into them and they stood alive? Haven't you learned about that? He could say something like that to him. But he says, you know, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. How can you not understand what has to happen? It's kind of harsh. <laughs> he calls him out Wake like up that. call. <laughs> yeah, are you the teacher and you don't understand these things? He says something interesting in verse 11. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Both of those, the we and the you, are plural. Who's the we that Jesus refers to, and then who is the you that he's speaking to? The one speaking, I think you, you probably want to go over to John chapter 5, where you speak, you see a kind of a, a cooperative testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the, the Father speaks, the Son speaks, the Spirit speaks. So that's the way. Who else could it be? I mean, Jesus' disciples don't get it yet. <laughs> they're, not, they're not on board. So I think the we must be that, that uh, Trinitarian we. So um, it could also be that he says here, um, we speak of what we know. Um, in other words, we speak about things that is a common experience. But I think here he's talking about testimony of being born again. And if you're talking about the Spirit, you're also, can you include the, uh, all the prophets who have testified that he really is not understanding them? Absolutely. They don't, they don't understand the message, uh, the unified testimony of the prophets. That would be fine. So we speak of what we know and we testify what we've seen. But you, plural, you unbelieving Jews, don't accept our testimony. And he's going to go through this again in John 5, where they read Moses and Moses testifies about Jesus, but they don't believe him. And so fundamentally, there's this idea of a testimony coming from the Jewish heritage, the root system Paul uses in Romans 11, this life-giving sap flowing, and they just don't get it. And so they're dead. Even while they're kind of growing on the tree, the olive tree, the cultivated olive tree, they don't get it. They're, they're, there's no fruit. There's no life. They don't see it. And so we, we, we give this testimony about the spiritual reality, the Messiah that's to come, the need for repentance and faith, but you don't get it. You don't, you don't accept the testimony. Yeah. And he says, if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, 
how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, what were the earthly things that Jesus is talking about? Because I kind of thought he was talking about all heavenly things. What do you think he's saying here? Well, I think I mentioned it a moment ago. He's using earthly analogies. He's using earthly language. He's using birth and wind and perhaps water. So things like that. Um, and so he says, look, I'm trying to explain heavenly realities in earthly language. The heavenly reality is the kingdom of heaven and the transformation that happens internally in the soul of a person. And the best analogy I can use for you right now is birth, being born again, something that happens again, uh, anew, or from above, that kind of thing. And you don't get it. So if I were to just start speaking the language of heaven to you, you would have no idea. You think about the book of Revelation, which gives us the clearest, the clearest vision of heaven and heavenly life of any book of the Bible. And it speaks, for example, of a song that the redeemed are singing in heaven, and no one can learn the song um, except those that have been redeemed are, uh, and are up in that heavenly place. So there's just a higher level of thinking and communication. And if I were to do that, you would have no idea what I'm talking about. So I've made it simple. I've used an analogy similar to his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman that took and hid, a large, uh, hid yeast in a large amount of flour, or it's like a seed planted. These are all analogies. They're not perfect analogies. They're just aspects of teaching. So Jesus is the consummate teacher, and he's saying, I'm using simple illustration. You still don't get it. How will you understand if I speak in heavenly language? Mm. And Jesus tells us uh, where he is from. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Uh, so what does it mean that Jesus ascended into heaven? And how is this different than other people in the Old Testament like Elijah or Enoch, who the Lord took up with him, but is different than ascension. Well, the idea of ascending comes from uh, Deuteronomy. It comes from Moses. And he said this, the word is not lofty, so that you have to ascend up in the heavens to get it. Uh, nor is it down in the depths. You have to go down in the depths to, to bring it up. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith I'm confessing. And, and, and you know, this is from Deuteronomy. So what Jesus is saying here is no one has ever done that. Uh, no one has ever gone into heaven to hear that heavenly language. I came down from heaven to speak it to you. So this is the best chance you're ever going to get, Nicodemus, to understand this, talking to me. There is no one like me. I'm the only one that has ever descended from heaven to earth. So he's saying there actually is no one that's made that, 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 that uh, journey from heaven to earth, or from earth, sorry, to heaven, from earth to heaven, to get this information and bring it down to you. I came from heaven to earth to tell it to you. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm unique. I'm exclusive. I'm the only heavenly teacher you'll ever talk to. I am the Son of God. And he's going to say again and again in John's gospel that he descended from heaven to earth. Now he picks an example up from the Old Testament mm -hmm. and lifts it up for us, you know, pun intended, <laughs> yeah, as an example of salvation. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So I want us to go back to this wilderness experience of Moses. Can you give us a little brief overview of Numbers 21, what happened, what Moses did, and how God provided salvation, and then tell us how Jesus is using this to explain uh, the salvation that he offers? It may be one of the most important stories in the Bible, just like Son of Man comes from one of the most important uh, prophecies in the Bible. And that's Daniel 7, the, the deity of Christ, the one like a son of man that comes into the presence of God and receives from him authority and sovereign power and glory and all peoples and nations and men of every language will worship him. 
and that's awesome. So that's, that's the Son of Man. Now he's reaching for this bronze serpent. Why do I say it's one of the most important? Well, first of all, John 3.16 is one of the most important and well-known verses in the Bible. It's very well-known. We'll get to it in a minute. But it's totally linked to this, uh, this bronze serpent teaching. We really have to understand it. If you're going to understand John 3.16, you have to understand the bronze serpent. And Jesus is saying this is one of the most important aspects of what it means to be born again. And it's related to the story of the bronze serpent. So let's, let's try to understand it. The Jewish nation was brought out of bondage, out of slavery in, in Egypt by Moses. And God delivered the Jews through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm doing ten plagues and then the mighty Red Sea crossing. And then in the intervening, you know, he gave them the, the law, uh, Mount Sinai. And then in the intervening time, he fed them with manna from heaven and water from a rock and brought them right to the brink of the promised land, to the Jordan River. And they sent 12 spies in and the spies brought back a beautiful report about the land, but through unbelief, they did not trust God to conquer the, the warriors that were waiting for them. They were afraid of the battles that were gonna come. They said, we can't win. They have cities with walls up to the sky. And so they turned away, they rebelled. They would not trust God in spite of the fact that God had carried them as a father carries a son all the way they went. They still did not trust God. Ten of the spies uh, turned away. The two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, uh, trusted in the Lord and tried to persuade the ten spies and through them the whole nation, but the nation turned away. And God then put them under judgment and said, none of you will enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. Not one of you, but your children will. So now turn around and go back the way you came, and for 40 years they had to wander in the desert. Well, they had to survive in order for them not to die immediately, um, but to give time for the next generation to grow up, God had to feed them, and he fed them out of love, and he fed them with manna from heaven. Day after day after day they went out and collected manna. After a while they got tired of it, very tired of it. They're eating the same food. Now it's ironic because they would have been living in a man land flowing with milk and honey. They would not have been eating manna. They've been eating grapes from, from vines, big as your arm, you know, unbelievable. Uh, but they wouldn't believe, so now they have to eat manna, and they start to complain. Well, God wasn't putting up with any of that, not putting up with complaining, because he's keeping them alive graciously. And so because of their complaining about the manna, they said, we hate this loathsome food. They called it loathsome. It was bread from heaven, and they hated it. And so God judged them. He sent poisonous snakes called fiery serpents, but the poisonous desert snakes into the camp, and many people died as a result of the poisonous snakes. So the people went to Moses, and they begged God through Moses, say, please pray and intercede for us to take the snakes away. Please tell God we're sorry for complaining. So Moses did intercede, and God heard the intercession, but did not do what the people wanted. He did not remove the poisonous snakes. He left them there, but instead he helped the people a different way. He commanded Moses that he should make a bronze serpent, a replica of one of those desert snakes, and put it high on a pole, and then send out a message throughout the camp, which would be several million people, to publish a message far and wide concerning the bronze serpent. If anyone, man, woman, or child, is bitten with the uh, poisonous snake, all they need do is go look at the bronze serpent, and I will see from heaven their look, and I will heal them. Well, God is doing something very, very intelligent. He is separating the, those that are bitten. He's separating the ones that are bitten into two categories, believers from unbelievers. And if you're bitten, 
and I think essential to this whole scheme, was that the poison would not take effect immediately. You had an uncertain amount of time to act on the promise. And the promise was, if you look at the bronze serpent, you will be healed. You will not die. But if you do not look, you will most certainly perish. So the people, when bitten, would be shocked in the reality. They would still have the strength to get up, crawl out of the tent, and go find the direction, north, south, east, west, wherever it was, find that bronze serpent, look at it, and God would see it. And God would heal, miraculously heal them. So it's incredible. Now the people could have moaned and groaned and gotten angry about it and said, no, what we need is anti-snake venom. We need the snakes to go away. We don't need that, etc. No, this is what I've done for you. All you have to do is look, and I will see from heaven, and I will heal you. Well, this is exactly spiritually like the gospel. All of us are bitten with the snake of sin, all right, the serpent of sin. The venom of sin is coursing through our veins. We have a limited time here on earth. We don't know when we're going to die. It is appointed to each one of us to die once and after that to face judgment. We have an uncertain amount of time and we now have this message that's gone throughout the world that if you look to Jesus, the one who is lifted high on the cross, lifted up from the earth, earth like the bronze serpent, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so Jesus, the Son of Man, would be lifted up on the cross. That everyone who looks to him by faith, God will see from heaven and forgive you of all your sins. And you will not die. You will not perish eternally in hell. We'll die physically, and that's part of the punishment of being human. But we will not die eternally. We will live forever. So he's likening his own death on the cross to the bronze serpent. It's an amazing teaching, and it would be good for all Christians to understand it because it is a, a very good story to tell in evangelism because you bring people to a realization of the need to look to Christ by faith. Yeah, it's just incredible. You know, Jesus makes a statement that Moses wrote about me. Yeah. Well, this is one of the ways. Yeah. Like, Jesus is the one lifted up. Yeah. He actually says this in chapter 12, if I'm lifted up from the earth, Amen. I will draw all men to myself. Now comes the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John yeah. three sixteen. We just explained it, though. <laughs> you did. You did. Um, do you want to say anything else about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I want to because uh, it's very, very important that we see the link between 15 and 16. John three fifteen is not one of the most famous verses in the Bible, but it's every bit as important as John three sixteen because of the word so. And the thing is the word so is so frequently misunderstood. The word so is used in a lot of different ways. Um, in English, but in this case, we just need to understand the Greek grammar behind the word so, okay? The Greek word literally means in the same manner or the same way. Hutos is the Greek word, and, and so the translation's fine. It's just the English is a little uncertain here. So people think John 3.16 would say something like this, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, for in the same way, God loved the world and gave his only begotten son. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way as the bronze serpent. That just as God provided the bronze serpent back in Moses' day, so now God has sent his son into the world and provided his son in the same way for the world now as the bronze serpent. That's, it's the link is to the bronze serpent. So in the same way that, that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so now God has again provided for sinners on earth. He has sent his son into the world to be lifted up in death on the cross, that whoever believes in him looks to him by faith. Whoever does the look of faith to Jesus Christ crucified will not perish, in this case not physical perishing, 
but eternal perishing, will not perish in hell, but have eternal life. Well, that's incredible, and I know we could talk much longer about this verse, but we're actually going to continue this in yeah. the next podcast when we Absolutely. discuss 17 uh, through the end of the chapter. And so uh, we're going to continue the discussion next time because it's going to pick right up, but we had to cut it off at some point. So that was episode five in the book of John. Please join us next time where we talk about light, darkness, and heavenly and earthly things from John chapter three, verses 17 through 36. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.